Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Film news website Dark Horizons celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. The website having become an industry standard for earning the ire and admiration of Hollywood. Its creator and editor, Garth Franklin, started the process, earning his first scoops and behind the scenes from people such as crew members and disenfranchised producers. He joins me now to talk about the 20 years of success, controversy, and the changing face of film criticism. Hello, Garth. No, I love that disenfranchised producers there. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of true at times. <laughs> well, I would imagine, I mean, your site was really built on the back of leaks and behind the scenes scoops. Yeah, I mean, one of the most famous and that thing I, I love to in the story is on the same day about the same movie I got a scoop from both a janitor and the president of production of that company <laughs> so these things can happen like that so how did this start you were 21 I believe at the time or 20 um, uh, well, no, when I first started I was uh, 18 18 right 18, yeah. literally first year of out of high school I was in my first semester of uni um, and uh, basically, my uh, mother was a professor at uh, UTS out here. Uh, she worked in the geology department, and she had an office that she would barely use because she would work from home. And so I was allowed that to do my work in and, and just access it, and it had internet access, which at the time was fairly rare and still not not that widely accepted at the time. Um, and I was using it to basically build the site. And what I did from there, yeah. And this was a step into when blogs were in their infancy. Yeah, there wasn't such a thing as a blog at that time. No, there was. There were news sites and that kind of thing, but they were all they were very main, you know, very simple stuff. A lot of like black screens with green text and all that kind of thing. The internet was uh, a, a thing of like X Files fan fiction and all that kind of thing at that time. <laughs> Do you remember your first scoop? Hmm, probably, actually, no, I don't think so, because it, it started that long ago. I mean, I can remember some of the very early big scoops that we got. I mean, one of the first ones that really opened my eyes in terms of just the scale of of this thing was uh, we got a, it was the first trailer for The Phantom Menace, the Star Wars film. This is 1999, Late 98, this was. Yeah. Um, and at the time, trailers were these little postage stamp-sized things you get on your screen. You barely could see anything. And uh, someone sent me through a description and I asked for, you know, at the time I was asking for proof that it exists. And he sent me the first couple of stills, the captures he got from it. And I was like, okay, this is real. Um, I better publish it and write it up. And the next thing I know, that just exploded the site across <laughs> now, consciousness. <laughs> now, this is when, this is actually when you appeared in Variety and LA Weekly and the LA Times and they relabeled you as Darth Franklin. Because you had gone out at <laughs> such a level and gone shot for shot for the for the trailer, wasn't it? You were the yeah, only person. Yeah, it was, a, person it was, a, it was that it. close. It was like a full-on detailed shot by shot thing of that trailer, um, and that was like this. Because remember, this was before Star Wars had been resurrected. This was like it had been twenty. Well, sorry, eighteen years since the last one. Nothing had come out before this point. No photos. No nothing. And this was the first piece of information that came out. It was like. Okay, wow. <laughs> so how does a kid in Sydney living mm -hmm. at home mm -hmm. end up with a leak from Lucasfilm, which is probably one of the most secretive production houses in the world? 
Well, this is also a time, this is a long before uh, disclosure agreements became, non-disclosure agreements became standard in this thing. <laughs> um, Nowadays, you basically can't get away with that stuff I was going to say, is that perhaps because you've caused that to happen? I, I think a lot of me and my brethren are partly responsible <laughs> for some of that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, at the time, I think, you know, email, email was still pretty early in infancy at that time. And so people were able to just, you know, they wanted the fans to sort of get that reaction and they were sending them out. And we earned the ire of Lucasfilm a couple of times on a few things uh, for that that one and for a, a, race, uh, sorry, a fourth Indiana Jones at the time that was quite different from what they ended up with. And how, how did that infamous nature build? How did it attract people to the site as you suddenly went global? Uh, it's, well, you know, reputation, uh, there were three, at the time in the sort of late nineties, there were really sort of three players in this field, um, in my field doing this sort of stuff. There was me, there was a guy named Harry Knowles, Veronica Cool, and, uh, Patrick Soriel, who wrote Coming Attractions, which was another sort of tech site. Uh, Soriel's came first and he was, he started in 95 and, um, it sort of broke down a list of by every film. And then, uh, Harry traded in on his reputation of being the bad boy and the, getting the scoop things, and I was just quietly doing my thing since, you know, 97, basically. The very very early 97 is when the site went from a fan site for one property, which was Star Trek at the time, to being an overall movie news site. And from there, the reputation kind of grew in terms of being kind of the ones that they can deal with. <laughs> they got along. I went to uh, the States for the first time in 1999, and I met with the studios and I walked into a, a, a meeting with Disney at one point. And I was meeting their head of production and like one of their, their basically head publicist. And I was there with my dad, just in like a flannel shirt and jeans. I was like 21 at the time. Um, and they're like, you're not what we expected. We expected four guys in suits and all <laughs> And we get this kid. <laughs> um, and that immediately actually disarmed them. It actually, they went from being very sort of cautious thing to being completely open and very sort of honest about stuff. And uh, I made some lifelong friends from that kind of, that early round of meetings and so forth. And, and this really was the burgeoning of the nature of fandom on the internet and, and news reporting on the internet. You know, you were at that forefront, as you said, with Harry Knowles. Did it change film criticism and, and film reviews and film news? Like you were suddenly in competition with magazines like Empire and Premiere magazine. Yeah, film film news certainly changed in that early days. Uh, criticism sort of was changed at a later thing. That was more a case of um, our sites didn't really. Uh, we did a lot of early test screening reviews and script reviews and that kind of thing. That stuff was pretty impactful early on. That's what, that's what a lot of the industry people were worried about. They were worried about the opinion being soured early. Um, that stuff also kind of went away very quickly after the non-disclosure agreements came through in probably the early 2000s. Um, and then just overall criticism was more changed by things like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic and all those aggregate sites. Um, whereas film news, on the other hand, has changed considerably because of basically what we did in that um, all of us, we... To do film news before this time, you basically had to be a trained journalist who'd been doing it for years at a paper, and you'd usually had worked in all sorts of other areas and fields. And then you had to, you are basically stuck on the, the entertainment blog was seen as like the, the last, you know, the place you want to be if you worked at a newspaper. 
And with us, it was like, this is what our <laughs> bread and butter is. This is what we love doing. Um, and so we made, we brought sort of enthusiasm to make up for our grammatical skills. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it ended up, because most of us who were doing it, we had gone to university, but we'd done different things. I did a very basic communications degree and I ended up uh, quitting halfway through to do this job, to do the site. Um, and it was one of those things that went from being a hobby for the first couple of years to being a career by about 99 or so. What was that like, though, when all of a sudden it changed, studios got involved and you were off, you were actually being put on planes and sent over with what would have been considered at the time formal journalists, you know, professional journalists and others? Uh, has it changed? Well, no, how did it change you then? What was it like for you? Oh, it was at the time because it was like, you know, like I said, 21, 22, it was incredibly exciting because I'd come from, I mean, I'd studied in high school to be uh, an Egyptologist. I was going to study ancient Egyptian and uh, Greek mythology and do, I come from a family of scientists, essentially, I live with a geologist, an uh, environmental scientist and all that kind of stuff, an archaeologist. <laughs> and um, I was studying to be an academic and then I ended up doing this. I always had a love for movies throughout high school and ended up doing this and I went from um, it just I, for the first two years when we were running the site, it actually put me into debt, and so by the time I was like twenty or so, I was about ten grand in debt. Which in the late nineties, that's significant. That's probably about twenty thousand yep. now. Um, and then I ended up going to the states uh, for I was nominated for a Webby Award, which is like their big internet awards thing at the time. And the other nominees were a couple of things like Film dot com and IMDb and all that sort of stuff, and. When I was in the, you're in this packed San Francisco town hall where they're holding it like full of hundreds of people and you hear the site's name being called out and there are cheers. And I'm like, wow, that's, yeah, this actually has had an impact. It's the same. And on the limo ride, there was like a limo ride. They put us up in a hotel. This was the first time we were given gratis something. They put us up in a hotel and they took us on a limo from the hotel down to the town hall. And I was with some of the other nominees and they were all like, you know, there was a Swedish team of about five people and there was a group, all these like giant groups. They worked for large organizations and I was just the one solo kid on his own doing this stuff. And they're all like, I can't believe what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and so we ended up, it, that was just the sort of start of uh, what became, you know, after that I got my first contract for, in terms of advertising on the site and I, I could turn this into a serious career. And I thought, oh, okay, um, I have to decide I can't do both. I can't do the degree and I can't do the site. And so I ended up, you know, stalling the degree and put on hold. I'm still on hold almost 20 years later. <laughs> um, and I, it became, I got my first contract. And by the time I was like 21, 22, I actually had a, was on more money than most people my age. And I was like, wow, this is great. Um, this is before the bubble burst, of course. And I ended up, yeah, it, from there you started getting things like set visits and all that sort of stuff, and it became a, a life-changing experience. In the last year, though, you have changed or you introduced a new element into your site, which beyond film reviewing and film criticism, you actually started putting a bit more of yourself personally in there when you started writing a series of features related to questioning masculinity. Oh, screen masculinity. Yeah, yeah screen yeah. masculinity yeah. within films. Why was that important to you? Uh, it was just one of those things I always wanted to do. My, uh, I, I basically a few years ago I met a man named uh, Blake Howard who's become a good friend of mine. who's a fellow writer in the Sydney scene, and it was a topic that we both have wanted to basically have to sit down and have a long conversation about. 
and we never had sort of the opportunity. And so we decided, well, why don't we do a feature piece on this sort of thing? And we started writing it, and we got a couple of columns in, and, I, um, and it's ended up being sort of one of the more rewarding writing experiences we had. Because in the job that uh, I do, where you're writing about news stories every day, you're doing about 20 to 30 news stories each day, um, it become it can become a little bit monotonous. You can almost do it automatically because it's been going on for 20 years. So actual creative writing outside of reviews is rare. I have to I only get to do that basically feature pieces, what they would call, um, every now and then. And I done one. I done a couple a few years ago. I did this uh, like a preview guide for the year, for the films coming up in the year. And in my usual kind of self, I kind of go a little overboard. So as most people stopped at about 50, I stopped at about 380 films. <laughs> it ended up being... Well, at least you stopped at some point. Yeah, but I, it ended up being something close to about 100,000 words for the, each, the whole thing, which is uh, novel size, essentially. <laughs> um, and I did that for a couple of years, and I realized, yeah, this is not... <laughs> I need to do something a bit more manageable. Uh, and so I've been doing the occasional feature pieces since, and this, this idea came up, and it's been, yeah, it's been great. How's it been received? Oh, Excellent. The the comments have it's one of those pieces that comes back even you know I think we had the last one a couple of months ago and even still I get comments to this day about it because it, it is at times a bit of an open wound it feels like you really are exposing yourself to an audience who otherwise were going there to 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 learn about film and learn about film news where you really have explained who you were growing up and what films informed you and how those elements of masculinity you just couldn't ever associate with when you look at film. And and then those that annoy you and things like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, where are you now with your sense of masculinity and, and the representation of masculinity on film? What do you relate to and connect to? Uh, I, the thing with masculinity on film, I, the, the problem I always have with it was that it was always portrayed as something very, very single-dimensional. Uh, and the good thing about movies now, my favourite film of, of last year, which is a film called Moonlight, um, which is about exactly this, which is essentially about men being uh, vulnerable on screen, which is a very rare thing um, because it went from being a very rich sort of 1970s Scorsese era portrayals of men on screen to the 1980s Rambo, Stallone, Schwarzenegger <laughs> kind of type. And we've been trying to shake off that interpretation ever since. Um, and in some ways you get, you've gone from, you went through that, then through the Judd Apatow man-child era <laughs> to something now where it's a bit more sort of dimensional and informed and so on. Um, I think partly growing up, as I said, growing up gay in a community, in a sort of very beachside Australian community, which is a little, you know, it's very nice, but it's also a little backwards at some point, um, partly informed it. Uh, and is it because you didn't see yourself on the screen growing up? Yeah, yeah to some extent. Um, I, I, I sent, certainly there were plenty of gay characters on screen I saw, but they're not. They were either the flamboyant friend who was always cracking jokes, or they were serial killers, <laughs> which I don't particularly <laughs> empathise with either of them. <laughs> um, so it was nice to always see some characters where it was a different. You know, there was actually something different where they break the mold, especially with the portrayal of men, because even more than there's always been complaints and it's fair enough about with women portrayed on screen they went from being just portrayed as Barbie doll kind of types to be portrayed as just straight you know you have Ripley and all those kind of characters where women portrayed as these very strong women 
but that was the only trait. That they it was almost they were just masculine. They were just men with, yeah. with breasts, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so you now are finally getting more sort of varied portrayals of women. Uh, and it's nice to be able that men are slowly but surely following suit. But, but we don't seem to have made that leap yet for at least Hollywood hasn't to have a gay leading man action hero. We haven't progressed. There's been times where uh, sometimes we, uh, the gay community, we're our own worst enemy in time. Um, they, uh, there was a film called Stonewall that came out the other year, which was Roland Emmerich, who was a gay filmmaker, famously gay, uh, who, who did made, like Independence, Independence Day and all Day. that sort of stuff. And he was basically portraying um, the Stonewall riots, which essentially kicked off the gay civil rights movement. But he did it so in a way that it was all centered about a, a white, good-looking male. He's like you know twenty something, whatever. Um, which is like not what was <laughs> the actual case. There are actually Latino transgendered sort of bigger figures who were actually the ones who were really responsible for this. Um, and so it is in television, film has been behind certainly on the gay movement. Television has actually filled in the gap a lot. Uh, TV film shows from, I think it started really with Queer as Folk, but went through to things like looking and all that sort of stuff, really portrayed gay experiences a lot better than they ever were done on film. Yeah, certainly the work of Russell T Davies in the UK, a lot of his stuff that he's come back to after Doctor Who has been yeah. things like Cucumber and Banana, etc., which is again telling yeah. further gay stories going. And there's been a real sort of welcome betrayal across there, but uh, film has still got a long way to go to catch up. I think it's partly because the industry itself is a little bit more behind in some ways. It's, it's slower to change. Um, partly because film is so much more driven by money than by eyeballs and such. Um, and so the money, it went from being excuse, the excuse of not portraying gay characters was always, we have to worry about what's happening in the square states in the US, you know, in those sort of flyover states in the middle, what Joe Farmer and all that kind of stuff thing. That's now changed. That rhetoric's changed to we're worried about, we have to sell this movie internationally and there are countries where, you know, especially in like China or some of the other countries where it's like, being gay is still in criminal in some cases. Um, so we have to worry about the revenue streams from there. And so the excuses are being <laughs> changed around, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's getting there. It's just taking time. And what's that like for you as a reviewer? Um, I mean, do you go in with a, a certain set of values that you say, you know, I want this to work this time because it's, you haven't, like, except for something like Moonlight, which I know you're very effusive over, which is just, it connected at, at a very deep level with you because it seemed to be a very fair representation. It was of that a fair story. It was also just very great. It's just great filmmaking. Yeah. Um, it works. It worked in a very sort of universal way, which is a lot of the ones don't. A lot of them become very uh, just too specific, and you kind of lose any sort of audience for it. Um, whereas this is more like a case of something like Breakback Mountain, where it's much more sort of universal and a wide appealing thing. As someone who's worked in the industry for so many years, have you ever felt tempted to write your own work, to move into the production side? <laughs> I did briefly. I actually wrote a screenplay once, um, back very early when I was young, um, about 1920. I, I, at the time, I made friends with a filmmaker at the time named Rennie Harlan, um, who did like Cliffhanger and... Die Hard 2. Exactly, yeah. Um, he came out here to do promotion for a, a film called Deep Blue Sea, which is a giant shark movie. Oh, yes. Um, and so I ended up, uh, he, we'd been emailing a few times and, um, he wanted to meet me. And the next thing I know, I'm on his publicity tour for about three days straight. But, um, and I stayed friends with him for, I'm still friends with him to this day, actually. He's now in China doing films. Um, and I, one time I gave him, I said, I'll, I'll give this, you know, 
I'll give it a shot. I've never written a screenplay. I'll give it a go. Um, and I wrote a science fiction sort of big space opera piece, um, which is a bit ambitious when you're like 1920. <laughs> it wasn't very. It was, I, I got it. I got it sent to him, and he sent it on to William Morris, um, the oh, agency. Yeah, and they had one of their script reviewers just go over it as a favor. And they came back, and it was a. I scored it like a two and a half out of five. Um, and the main complaint was that it was uh, overwritten. Too much. There was like just too much going on, and it didn't make sense. And from the reviewer, it was like, "Yeah, I'm not making it clear. <laughs> <laughs> I need to sort of scale back if I ever do this again." So, yeah. Does it sit there within you, waiting to come out again? No. I, I mean, I looked. I revisited it about three or four years after I got it submitted, and there was still there was some key sequences in it. I still liked the idea of, but the overall thing was just this doesn't really work. And then about a year ago, uh, somebody contacted me. They picked up, obviously it must have been the copy that the guy, because only one copy was ever sent out, and it was sent out to that uh, William Morris guy. And they, it was left with them. I thought they just had it sitting in a vault somewhere. And they found it in a Melbourne street market. Really? One, like a whole bunch, like a whole table of scripts, and it was like buried underneath one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> So, I didn't have any copies. I lost the, every copy I had. How truly random. Yeah, <laughs> it was very random. <laughs> but no, it doesn't really sit there as a thing. I would always, I enjoy writing, but the thing I learned about screenplay writing the more I went into this industry was that you don't get into it because the best, if you want to write creatively, the best thing you can do is write a novel, especially now with all the digital distribution networks, sell it. And then write the screenplay adaption yourself. <laughs> so it's the deal itself. If you can basically craft your own work in exactly the way you want, and then you can write the compromised version if you need to. <laughs> Screenplays are always, unfortunately, compromised right from the beginning. You, you mentioned Harry Knowles before, who uh, built up a certain level of notoriety as the bad boy of internet press at the time of with Ain't It Cool News. Now, he ended up in things like uh, The Faculty with a walk-on part yeah, yeah, in the yeah, Robert, Robert Rodriguez, Rodriguez's yeah. film. Yeah. And people who have written for him ended up just writing the Doctor Strange film. So, Garth, where's your credit? <laughs> Not much. The Austin community is a very big film community. So there's a Robert Rodriguez, which gave Harry Knowles his break. It's all based down there. He has his own production studio and everything here. I, I've talked with various Australian filmmakers, but they don't allow you into that kind of films. I have a, I got a walk-on extra credit on Angst, which was this old 90s uh, Aussie teen film. And um, that was about it. During the 20 years, though, you have also championed Australian film. You know, you have held... A little bit. Not as much as I probably should have. <laughs> but you, you have held home to, uh, you know, you, you've based in Sydney, you know, and I imagine the temptation has been over time, perhaps, to move to the States, given the nature of that's where so much of the news was coming from. Uh, there was at the time, uh, probably certainly a, a more of a pressure of it years ago. Now it's sort of changed. Uh, it's more... I mean, I've spent probably a good two, two and a half years of my life in Los Angeles. Um, you know, all added up, I've probably flown back and forth from there about 30, 40 times um, just for work stuff. And there was a period there where I was like seriously considering moving and then I stayed there for extended periods and I realised, yeah, I don't want to live here. <laughs> I love visiting, but you don't want to live there. <laughs> and, and, and so why is that? The, the beauty about visiting LA is that uh, people will make the time for you. And you can basically, if you go there like once or twice a year, people will go out of their way and they'll come to you and you can do stuff. But if you're living there, it's a different kettle of fish. You're much more into the grist of the mill. And there's a whole, that 
chews people up and spits people out and it's a nasty thing. You, know, you don't want to become a victim of that. And I, with my luck and my industry contacts, I was able to you know, go to some very wild places and see some crazy things and lots of stuff. But it's, it's fun to be on the inside in that city when most people are sort of on, go there on the outside and just see the touristy things. Um, but on the flip side, you also see some of the darker aspects of it. And it's like, I, yeah, I don't really want to lose myself to have it there. <laughs> and is that because of the nature of the personalities or the industry itself? Oh, it's the industry itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a strange industry. <laughs> kind of, it, the industry itself is like, uh, if you've ever visited Las Vegas for the first time, it's gaushy. It's, you know, really bad taste for a lot of the cane. And some of it is incredibly enjoyable, but there's also a really dark side to it as well. <laughs> What was it like for you when Australia became a hub of genuine international filmmaking? Made my job easier. <laughs> <laughs> there was a period there where, yeah, the Gold Coast was the first to explode and then Sydney kind of really took off for a, a brief period and then all the dollar, uh, you know, the value went crashing way back up and that cancelled everything. So I've seen it go through a couple of waves and it's always, it's just good to see uh, there's various contacts, you know, you make in this industry if you work in it. And it's good to see them getting employment and enjoying, you know, going on these wildest <laughs> fun set experiences. And, uh, yeah, the industry itself here is, uh, it, it's, it's been in desperate need to sort of make a comeback in recent years. I'm glad it's, it is finally doing that now. You mentioned the bubble before, the burst in regards to. Oh, internet. well, it's just the internet bubble. Back in yeah, the internet bubble yeah. itself. How did it, if it did, affect you? and your business at that time and the site because you have remained independent mm. through all these years, which yep. which is most surprising considering the nature of how popular you became in those late 90s. Mm -hmm. You know, was it an active decision not to sell or were you? Oh, there was always, the option was always there. Um, there was always, there was a couple of offices that came through. Only one was ever given any serious consideration um and that ended up not happening because of legal things it was just uh, the contracts were just ridiculously draconian um and a lot of it was also i mean the the burst in the 90s at the end of the 90s sort of 2000 uh, before that time i went from running the site for nothing well actually losing my own to running the site for about a year or two on ridiculous salary to having nothing again for about two or three years so that one year paid for like a couple of years on either end, essentially. Uh, <laughs> um, and then it sort of settled down and became into a much more sort of sustainable and more regular thing, which is actually much more convenient now. Because the rough thing, especially with advertising throughout the early 2000s and working in this sort of field, was any income you got was never uh, flat. It was never, it was always going like huge spikes and then vanish for months on end and then a huge spike, whatever. So it was very hard to plan any kind of life or, you know, serious sort of financial responsibilities around anything. Um, it affected us. Uh, it didn't affect the actual content of the site in any way. Um, it did. We had some severe competition coming in, probably about 99, 2000, and that, that curbed a lot of the people who were just dipping their toes into it at that time. And so that probably gave us a bit more breathing room. And where did that, comp where, where did that competition come from? A lot of the corporate sites, corporate things had just started. They decided, oh, we must have an internet site. This is the big thing. And then when that whole tech bubble crashed because there was no money in it anymore, they said, no, we'll put that on hold. And a lot of them put it on hold essentially for another five or six years after that. But then eventually they all came around to it. And then every magazine starts putting out their own online outlet. And 
and here we are. Well, I imagine one of the benefits that allowed you to continue throughout that period, though, was that you were built on the back of scoops and behind-the-scenes information. How did that change, though, when things like social media became more apparent? Oh, the way the nature of the scoops have changed considerably. Um, in the late 90s through to the early 2000s, it was from insiders. There was a lot of insiders giving you information, usually from within studios, from production crew, from agents, and so forth. Those, then you started getting all these, uh, they started becoming much more secretive with productions. You had pub, there were no online publicity divisions before that time. Um, and then they, all of a sudden, they decided to start setting them up. And now you have entire wings of online departments setting to things. And so with those came, you know, more official agreements about things, embargoes started coming in, started getting non-disclosures on the crew. And so facts that came from insiders started drying up. And a lot of it now comes from, from sort of actually mid-2000s through to about 2010 or so. It came from junkets. It came from people who were doing those weekend, weekend interviews and they would get a couple of quotes about the next film. And that still goes on a little bit today, but a lot of it now is literally social media press releases. That's what happens now. It's, it's, it really has gone from being a, a real sort of scavenger hunt to find these little info facts to being more a case of, uh, of aggregation, of get, just sorting through the amount of just, there's, there's too much news now. There's like almost so much. You have to basically cull and try and find the key facts. How do you therefore retain interest in your site and a purpose? If everyone else is doing yeah, that, thing. yeah, yeah. If everyone's living off Twitter and Facebook, etc., and they suddenly, whether they're intending to or not, they are becoming a news news feed themselves. The trouble with most uh, with social media as a news feed is generally, is generally, again, it's all about concentration. It's, most people just simply, if you're on there constantly, you can keep up to date pretty well with most things. But even then, it's most people don't have the time. A lot of people will like their news in short bits and at different times, and they want more or more in-depth stories and so forth. And each site in this field has sort of catered to a specific audience, that kind of thing. With Dark Horizons, the main audience that we catered for right from the start, and it's still true today, was uh, a lot of people who are in colleges or in offices who literally only have, you know, that five, ten-minute coffee break once a day to get put out all the key stories that they need to catch up on no hyperbole, no seriously long editorialising, just go straight with the facts, bang, 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 and get it out. And to this day, that's why we still have the audience we do. It's all, a lot of it is people who, I mean, with an average site, say a news site, you would probably have about 40% coming from social media traffic or Google News or that kind of thing. Um, with Dark Horizons, we only get about 10% of our traffic from that. Almost all our traffic comes to us directly. It's like the people who have been reading the site for 20, 10, 5 years, and they just are like locked in and they, <laughs> they love it. You mentioned before that a lot of these sites, as films, sorry, film companies work a bit concerned about your early impressions or, or people who would feed you early impressions of pre-screenings and, and mm -hmm. pre-launch screenings. Yeah. Um, how do you think the nature of film has changed, though, now in the sense that we seem to see studios changing, re-editing based on social media feedback and film criticism? Yeah, that's in the old days, thing, they used yeah. to just shut it down. They used to just, like, we're not going to talk about it, we're going to make the film we want. Yeah. 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 How's it changed? Oh, it's changed the nature of film completely, and that's a lot of social media reaction in terms of 
to do it like they did with Suicide Squad, where it changes it while it's in production, is almost unheard of. And that's come in like the last two or three years, and it's kind of terrifying <laughs> because uh, there was always test marketing for films and reactions, and they would adjust things. Test screenings they have all the time for movies. I saw a test screening once of back in the late. No, early 2000. For the, remember a film called The Cell with Jennifer Lopez? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I went to a test screening of that and I came out and saw the film six months later. And the only thing that they added in the film or changed at all was they added back a scene of her uh, smoking a joint. For some reason, I guess people were kind of wanting to have <laughs> Jennifer Lopez smoking pot for some reason, I guess. <laughs> but they test every scene to the minute detail. Down with the kids or something like that? <laughs> So there was always tinkering to some extent. It's just so much more public now. So yeah, I mean, you look at something like Star Wars Rogue One, which yeah. has recently come out, and yeah. it's been quite widely reported how they reshot sections. And also, mm. you know, now when you look at the very first trailer, it almost has no connection to this what we saw on screen. Yeah, exactly. How do you think fans have contributed and contained and also damaged filmmaking these days? <laughs> because you, you have a fan site. Yeah, good question. No, good question. Um, as it, filmmaking was never ever in a bubble. It was always, to some extent, reliant on feedback, especially studio filmmaking. Um, independent filmmaking now is much less worried about that stuff. Actually, the, the, the beauty of the downside with studio filmmaking is it's become more user oriented. It's the public has its say because the filmmakers are now more open with their access before and during production they're going to get feedback a lot earlier than they anticipated and they usually will adjust their films because of that and that's a, that is a worry. Um, so that is why, to some extent, people have complained that uh, blockbusters of the past two or three years have been almost uniformly dire. Uh, <laughs> and to some extent, they have a point. But on the flip side, you have the indie films and the smaller films where because that has be, that's become much more democratised because they used to be gatekeepers in terms of the cost of equipment and all that kind of stuff. And now people will be able to shoot them on iPhones. And one of the best films of like last year was Tangerine, which is a film shot on iPhone 5s. Um, it's become a lot more sort of free, freer of that kind of thing. So you're getting trade-offs in different ways. But the industry itself is changing as being, and is being changed by other, other factors, be it streaming, which is completely rejigging the game as well. And the, you have what is called the death of the middle budget film. Which is happening across not just television, but it's happening across, uh, sorry, not just film, uh, across television and games and so forth as well. And, and describe to me what a middle of the road film is. Well, a middle budget film is any film between about, say, 15, 20 and 60, 70 US million dollar budgets. So uh, what in the past, um, you would have films that would be like, uh, remember back in the say the 90s you had a lot of those adult psychological thrillers you know James Patterson books like anything with Ashley Judd pretty much yeah. or Morgan Freeman <laughs> um, those kind of films they're kind of they're fallen by the wayside they are getting rare and rarer you're getting nowadays you're getting only the blockbusters like your big super Marvel superhero films those things which cost 130 at least million maybe up to 200 million dollars or your much smaller films like your Moonlights like uh, a lot of lands and lots of stuff, which are all like 10, 10 million sort of films. A lot of those middle ground movies have, have dropped off because there's no money in them. A lot of us, most of it has migrated to television. 
I was going to say, is that is that the new horizon? Things like because there's so many channels now, there are so many streaming services that are going into uh, original content. You know, we've just seen Netflix commit to a ridiculous amount of um, new content for the next year ahead. Yeah. You know, uh, and even our local producers out here stand are producing material. Mm. You know, so is that the future of film? Or at least mid-range film and low-budget film? Certainly to some of the mid-range stuff, yes. I mean, a lot of the filmmakers are getting into that now. It's It's gone from being, even like eight or nine years ago, they had the US had something like 220 shows on the air. This year it's going to pass 500. Um, it's gotten to the point that uh, because there's the risk-taking is all happening on television, it's not really happening in film anymore, aside from the low-budget indies, and even then you're sort of limited in some ways. What, do, what does that mean for a site like yours then? Oh, because we cover television as well, so it doesn't really impact us too much. Uh, but for for dedicated, like, serious cinephile sites, it's becoming a lot harder to do that job. And what does it mean for you, though, personally? Because you will therefore be going off and most of the films you'll probably have to be looking at and covering will be these big budget, action, flashy, tentpole features. Mm-hmm. So you yourself, after 20 years, are no longer going to have that diverse range of material to look at. What does that mean for you? Um, it's meant I've had to basically diversify the site as much as I can. Um, we went from being just a film site to, to covering television as well. Now we're covering games as well, which we didn't used to do. Um, and as much as there is a lack of, uh, as I said, it's, it's becoming more ghetto-wise, shall we say, in the film things, there's no shortage of films or content coming out. I mean, in any given year, you're talking with hundreds of films still to deal with, and a lot of it is just wading through and finding the ones that stand out. And so, therefore, the question needs to be, you, you know, when you're writing over a thousand words, etc., of film criticism about the films that are coming out, let alone the films that have been, you haven't published. And that surprises me, that you haven't put it into a book. You haven't gone oh, the way like of many reviewers. Yeah, 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 a compendium. Because that was a big thing for a lot of reviewers. It still remains to be. A lot of them yeah. do that. I had considered it at one point, yeah. You, you haven't taken that leap? No, it was one of those things, because everyone else was doing it, it never really interested me that much. I was, I'm always someone who kind of goes against the flow a bit. Um, I enjoy sort of being a bit of the rebel against that kind of thing. Um, and... The people I know who did that sort of stuff, um, there's, there's a mate out here, a guy named Mark Fennell, who's done a couple of books on, on this sort of thing. Um, I'm like, yeah, if I ever wrote anything where I would spend the serious amount of time, I would actually do something that would actually please me, and that would probably be some sort of fictional writing. Yeah, so step away from film and actually go into the story side. Yeah. What, what does it look like when you go back and say 20 years of change for you and an industry? Uh, for the most part, you feel pride more than anything else. Um, because it's, you've been able, this is a field that's incredibly tough to survive in. Um, very few people are able to not only do it, but actually make a living out of it. That's, that's the tricky thing. Most of the people who do, uh, this is their side job or it's like one of five jobs that they've got. <laughs> they've got um, and they can't, they'll just do freelancing stuff. And I've been in that sort of, I've been very, very lucky and I got in early enough um, and the people who've supported the site have been so generous, that sort of thing, um, that we've been able to, yeah, just actually make a living and, and really live an interesting life out of it more than anything else. 
Well, Garth, it's been an absolute pleasure. Congratulations on 20 years of non-stop writing seven days a week for all this period. And, I mean, you've kept me entertained for 20 years, and I'll date myself as saying I even leaked to you about Superman Returns and The Matrix Reloaded. <laughs> so congratulations and all the very, very best for the next 10, 20, 30, however many years you want to keep doing it. So keep Thank doing it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming in, Garth. Thanks. And you can find Garth at darkhorizons.com or on social media. This has been Conversations with Writers. I'm James Rickards, and please connect with us via Twitter at ConversationsWW or find us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>